There that uh, well, we're going to Luke chapter 16, going to be, read, be reading verses 19 through 31. Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. Today we're starting a new series, so I appreciate you being here today particularly. We're starting a new series called You Got Questions, He's the Answer. And we believe that that is certainly something that is needed today, lots of things. Maybe you've had questions over the last year, year and a half, and you want to come today knowing that He has the answer, and you want to come and I want you to hear me because I think you want to be a part of what's happening in the church. We've been in that period here for the last year or so to where we're kind of hopefully trying to get people back in church, try to keep it back more involved and even more consistent. But we want to give you a reason to be a part, not just because you think it's something that you need to do. We want you to be a part because we believe that the church is, has the solution for all answers today. That is, we have the hope of the world that is found in Jesus. And so you want to be a part of what's happening at Parkway Baptist Church. I fully believe that a church that is sold out to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, Parkway Baptist Church, who loves and believes that the Lord has answers and solutions. I was uh, listening to a politician interview here the last few days, I guess, and, uh, and as I listened, he, he talked about how bad things were in Washington, that uh, people don't know what they're doing, nobody knows what's going on, talked about what's happening in Afghanistan, how bad things were there, and, Double talk about COVID everywhere you see, how bad things were on the board. Economy is going to get worse and worse. And I was listening. I was listening because I wanted to hear from this politician, this one who's voted in to represent this nation and represent us, uh, was going to come up with maybe some solutions or ideas. I heard none. And I thought, well, that is because we know, I mean, there are some politicians who do have some solutions. Some are better than others, we understand, but we know the one who is the best solution. So we're approaching today and over these next few weeks and as we move into the fall, being able to find solutions that are found in God's Word, hope of the Lord. And when we live in this time and you think, boy, things are soon kind of chaotic. They seem to be kind of out of place or falling apart. Cling to the cross. Run to the church. And be ready to share with others to have solutions in every problem. Hope is found in Jesus. So as we move forward, we want it to be a place that you want to come, that you, that you can't wait to be a part of, whether it's what's happening here in this worship service or your Sunday school or small groups, and be a part of the church so that you can find some answers and application and information that you might be able to use. But it's also so that you might be able to share with others those things that you have learned and those things that you understand, and particularly that you've experienced in Jesus, so that others might be able to be able to know as well. You want to look to be able to pass on intentionally or when opportunity arises. I encourage as we kind of move forward, beginning this week, moving to the fall weeks, that are small groups, discipleship groups, that you may take some of the information or even the verses that we use, maybe to use as a part of your discussion. Not so that you might discuss or debate, but so that you might be able to even find some more personal application uh, and go even further. I, I will, as always, have a primary text that we will use, and we will let the Bible speak to the Holy Spirit. Uh, we'll also, as we often do, look at other related texts on whatever topic or subject that we're looking at. But we will guard against what I would call proof texting and try to make the Bible say something that it ought not to say. So for these next two weeks, you've, that's the overall view for the next few weeks. I know some of you are visiting or you're out of town or you're coming in. We appreciate when you know that each service that we come, there's going to be a lesson unto itself. 
But for these next couple of weeks, we kind of, the title of these next couple of weeks are uh, Heaven's Gate and Hell's Flames. And you may be thinking, man, well, what a place to start, what a place to begin. But I do believe it will help us to be able to see the big picture. That if we see the big picture or our problems in light of eternity, it'll help us to put everything else into perspective. Plus, I, I do want to talk about heaven. And so we're looking forward to that. That'll probably be more next week. But in order for us to talk about heaven, I think we also must talk about the alternative. This illustration is a, uh, is a true story. Dorothy, the kindergartner, was riding with her mom, the back seat in her seat, booster seat or whatever, riding with her mom in the car. And she was looking out the window. She saw some poles that were sticking up out of the ground. And so she asked her mom, as kindergartners will often do, said, uh, Mom, is uh, those poles, is, is that how people in hell breathe? And uh, Mom thought that's kind of a curious question. She said, uh, well, I don't know, dear. Uh, what makes you ask that question? said, well, Mom, uh, my, uh, Dorothy asked, as her Dorothy said, uh, she said, uh, do, you believe in, do you believe in hell? Mom said, yes, yes, I do. And then she asked, does everybody believe in hell? She says, uh, no, I'm afraid not everybody believes in hell. And then Dorothy, the kindergartner, said, well, my teacher sure does, she kind of shouted. She says, she talks about hell every day. Well, you can imagine the mom was kind of worried about that, so she inquired some more. She said, well, well what does she say when she talks about hell? She said, every day she stands up in front of the room and goes, inhale, exhale, inhale, exhale. Just a light moment for a serious subject. Have I said turn to Luke chapter 16 yet? Luke chapter 16, we're going to begin reading with verse 19. Luke chapter 16 and verse 19. This now is the Word of God. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw an Abraham far off at Lazarus's side, and Lazarus at his side, verse 24, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send them to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. May the Lord bless the reading of His holy word today. In this parable, we are given a glimpse of two places, one of everlasting punishment, one of eternal joy and bliss. I believe this to be one of the most sobering, maybe eye-opening of all the passages that we will study. Jesus tells this parable as a factual account, as if Jesus is talking and He says, these are the things that happen. We do not deny its authenticity its presentation of the realities of heaven and hell are found nowhere else in Scripture like it is in this parable. And it is the only parable that Jesus tells to where we're actually given the name of one of the characters or one of the people in the story. 
if some of the problems that we're facing in this world have life and death implications, if some of the fears that we are facing causes us to, cause us to remain isolated or to go to our knees in prayer or both, if we believe the Bible and everyone who takes their last breath or either ushered into the presence of the Lord Jesus or they swept away from the presence of God, completely separated for all eternity, then shouldn't we be talking about these things? Now, you who have chosen to be here on this Labor Day weekend, uh, and many, as always, who are live streaming, you may not feel like this is a reward for your effort in order to be here today. But it is, I hope, uh, one of those things that is very enlightening as well as an encouragement to you, particularly those who have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ or those who will have an opportunity to be able to do so today as we focus particularly on the reality of hell. Now, you've got some questions that you came in or that you've given in your worship folder there as a part of our notes. And we may not do every week on this kind of question-answer study or just list questions, but we have some today maybe just using an outline, so you may want to write some notes here as we go. But the first one is this, who is in danger of hell? Salvation at its most basic understanding is to be saved from the fires of hell. Many people who give testimony, if they are honest, they will say that they came to Jesus because somebody said something or a preacher preached on hell and they didn't want to go there. And there's nothing wrong with that, particularly Jonathan Edwards uh, preached a sermon in the 1700s called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And as he preached it, many people were shouting during the sermon, well, how can I be saved? How can I be saved from hell? And it is even told, maybe more legend than fact now, but uh, been told that as he was preaching, people were hanging on to the rafters so that they may not slip into hell before they were able to pre understand what it was to be able to receive Christ as Lord and Savior. But we know Jesus left the throne room of heaven to be born in Bethlehem. He came in the form of a man, 100% man, at the same time 100% God. He suffered and died so that you would not have to suffer. He rose again and is alive today and His grace extends further to not just salvation from hell but also so that we might be able to have a relationship with Him while we're here on this earth and be a part of what He is doing, be a part of the solution and so that we might dwell in heaven for eternity. Health and wealth in this life are no guarantees of God's blessings in the next life. Those who have received good things in this life may suffer agony in the next. Those who have suffered may find themselves being comforted. But note this, it was not the riches or the poverty that determined the eternity of the two men in the parable. Nor was it determined by their good deeds or their bad deeds, but it is who they made their God. The rich man's God was not just his wealth, but his doing whatever pleased himself. And the fruit of that was that he did not do any for others. There could not be any two greater extremes kinds of people that are represented here in this world. While the rich man enjoyed a flamboyant lifestyle of health and wealth and fine clothes, the picture is painted of an exorbitant lifestyle, the rich and famous that we can imagine. There's nothing evil about having money. We know, Bible says, not that money is the root of all evil, but the love of money is the root of all evil. Abraham's mentioned in the passage. Abraham was a, a wealthy man as well. One of the purposes of this parable is that God's people, changed by their experience with Jesus and the presence of the Holy Spirit, will use their 
wealth or resources or whatever they have or whatever we have, how meager, how great it may be for kingdom purposes and to serve others as evidence of salvation. You know, the disciples were amazed whenever Jesus told a parable or said something about the rich people not entering the kingdom of heaven or the rich people going to hell. They just assumed that if they're rich on earth, that God sure must be pleased with them. They once asked Jesus the question, well, if the rich can't get to heaven, then who can? We know that money can help to tell people the good news of Jesus around the world. Also can send people to heaven, in a sense, by sharing that. Or the love of money can literally send people to hell. Lazarus was physically disabled. Now, no, this is not the same Lazarus that was Jesus' friend who died and Jesus brought back to life. But another Lazarus, adding to the authenticity of the story, not just a parable. He did not choose, Lazarus did not choose to sit at the rich man's gate. He was placed there by others. We read it a moment ago. We don't know why they sat him there. Maybe the family or friends sat him there and thought, this is the best place for a beggar to beg in front of a rich man's house. Or maybe it was simply not to be bothered. His name means God has helped. And, well, certainly God did, for it seemed that no one else did. And he was a wretched man physically. To look at him would bring disgust. He desired to be fed with the food of the crumbs that fell off the rich man's table. This may be a reference to the fact that sometimes the rich would, uh, when they got through eating, whatever bread was left over, or maybe bread for this particular thing, is they wiped their hands and cleaned themselves off with the bread, and like instead of a napkin or a cloth, and then throw it out. And said he des- that's maybe what he desired to be able to get from the rich man's table. Said he desired it, didn't say that he got it. For no one paid him attention except for the dogs that came to lick his swords, which even added to further problems for him because he probably did not have the ability to push them away. When the rich man died, he may have had a large expensive funeral. When Lazarus died, nobody seemed to notice but the angels who came to take him to Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom, maybe as some translations say. This is the only time that this phrase, Abraham's side, is used in Scripture is in this particular parable. It is used in other Jewish literature. So it was probably common to the very first readers that were reading this. And it could have been just a reference to heaven or being in paradise. Or it could be that it had been a prominent place to be by Abraham's side, which is where Lazarus was taken, a prominent place next to Abraham at the heavenly banquet. It does not, Scripture does not say that this rich man was miserable during his life, which is what we like to think sometimes. People who don't follow Jesus, well, you may be happy now, but you know, you're not going to be happy always. But it doesn't say that he wasn't happy always or had as much as this life could ever offer. He may have enjoyed his wealth to the fullest a man can who's self centered, whose God is his belly. Many people are lost who don't know they're lost. Many people are just enjoying life, maybe. And they kind of look, wonder, why are we going to so much trouble to do what we do? To come to church on Sunday or to miss out maybe on all the fun that they're having. But it does help in order to witness and to share effectively. We do need to know sometimes and understand what other people are thinking and what they feel. The rich man's problems was he did not consider God at all. And the treasure that he laid up on earth, even if his wealth brought him a good 
For a time it gave him nothing but misery in the life to come. Mark chapter 8 and verse 36 says, For what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and lose his own soul? Those who are in danger of the fires of hell. Who is it? Answering the question. Those who are in danger of the fires of hell. The rich and the poor. The good and the not so good. Red, yellow, black and white. Male and female. Who have not repented and put their faith in Jesus. Works or lack of works does not protect anyone against going to hell. Jesus, speaking to a Jewish audience, assuming that he was talking about a Jewish Lazarus and a Jewish rich man, wanted to make it clear that those who belong to the Lord should be characterized by caring and having mercy on others. But this is not what will keep you out of hell. For the Bible says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3, 23. In Romans 6, 23, kind of the mirror passage of that, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I want you to focus for just a moment on Romans 6, 23, the comma that comes right after death. How important that comma is. Because if we're thinking Bible, and that was a period there for the wages, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, the wages of sin is death, we truly live in a hopeless situation. But all thank goodness for the comma. That means that all those who place their faith in Christ, that the gift of God is eternal life. Well, what is hell like? C.S. Lewis describes an inscription that he came across on a tombstone that says this, Here lies an atheist all dressed up and no place to go. To that he adds, I bet he wishes that were so. There are things revealed in the afterlife in these, this passage that are in no other. We get a glimpse of what a lost person sees and thinks and feels and wants. And it's not a third person description. It's from the dead man himself. Verse 23, we have the word Hades. I'm reading from the ESV. Some trans- translate it as hell. It's a general term meaning the place of the dead. But it helps us maybe to understand how hell was talked about in the Old Testament and the New Testament for just a moment. Hell in the Old Testament is most often used as the word Sheol, S-H-E-O-L. And uh, it is used 65 times. Same words translated in the King James. 31 times as grave, 31 times as hell, and pit three times. Same word. It often means the place where a dead body is placed, whether it's talking about the place where it's the dead body of a redeemed or the unredeemed depends on the context. Most often it talks about the unredeemed. In Job chapter 10, verses 20 through 21, it is a place of darkness. In Psalm 94, 17, it's a place of silence. In Isaiah chapter 14, 9 and 10, it's a place of punishment. In Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 22, it is a place of fire. Hell in the New Testament, three words are generally used to refer to life after death for the unsaved. One of those that is found in this passage is the word Hades, generally equivalent to the Old Testament Sheol. In the New International Version, Hades is translated five times. Twice it is used as in the depths. Twice it's translated as the grave and once as hell. So ten times it is used in the New Testament. Like Sheol, it is used to describe the general place for the unredeemed. Gehenna is another one of those words, most often always translated as hell. Twelve times uh, it is used in the Bible. Eleven of those were used by Jesus. It refers to everlasting punishment. The name is derived from the Valley of Hinnom. The Valley of Hinnom is a narrow southwest 
part of Jerusalem. It was the place where corrupt kings Ahaz and Manasseh would offer children and sacrifice to the gods of fire. Ahaz himself offered his own children. When Josiah, good King Josiah, when he became king in order to put an end to all of this, he turned that place into a garbage dump and set it on fire. And they continued to use it as a garbage dump even to the time of Jesus. It was said to be a place to where the fire was never quenched, to where the fire never stopped. And when Jesus referred to hell as Gehenna, He was actually giving the illustration that hell was like this garbage dump that always burns and it's never put out. Jesus may have actually even pointed to it as if to say, could you imagine living here for eternity? Multiply that many times over. The third word that is used, used only once, is the word Tartarus, translated as hell, used in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4, where many of the fallen angels would be held. It means the place of the abyss or place for the wicked. Let's go ahead and read 2 Peter 2, 4. <clears throat> I don't have it on your screen, but <clears throat> excuse me. Just let you listen if I could speak. <clears throat> for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly. In Luke chapter 17, it's definitely a description of the place of eternal punishment. The rich man who had at one time all the luxuries that life could afford, now is in torment in a real flame he can see beyond himself, which certainly adds to the misery. Perhaps the only thing worse than being in hell is being in hell and then being able to see into heaven. You do know that one day all will acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. Philippians chapter 2 says, Every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But for some, it will be too late. It will not make a difference for their eternity. I, I find this to be an astounding lesson. People's hearts do not change unless they've been changed on this earth by the touch of the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe that whatever good has occurred because we have met Jesus, whatever good is being built in us as we become more like Christ, will be multiplied hundred times over when we get to heaven. But all the sinful nature that kind of still lurks around in us, we are told by Scripture that... It will be burned away on final entry. For the lost, the parable reveals Jesus, they're seeing Jesus for who He is in the next life, will not change them. Because it's Jesus dwelling in us that brings the change. The rich man did not change. Did you notice we read in the parable, now he sees Lazarus, speaks to Abraham, has great respect for Abraham as a Jewish man, but now he sees Lazarus, who now has legs and could be able to walk and whatever he sees. And he says, can't Lazarus, the beggar, can't he go and do my bidding? Have him go touch some water so he might touch my lips so that I might be able to quench this thirst. Even the concern for his five brothers now perhaps only showed that he had concern for his own. His heart did not change. Some other questions over the, just the next few minutes. Is hell a literal place? U.S. News and World Report in an article called Hell's Sober Comeback. 
says three out of five Americans now believe in hell. But their view and what that's like is quite different. Another study found a similar report. 78% of Americans believe in heaven. 58% believe in hell. Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 24 talking about it, is this a literal place. It is spoken of there as if it was beneath the earth. Someone said hell is as far below the earth as heaven is above the earth. Neither can you get to by a rocket ship. It's a spiritual dimension. Some will seek to water down the descriptions of hell as symbolic, or maybe we would say merely symbolic. Revelation gives many descriptions which are full of symbolism. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 11. Revelation 2 and verse 11 talks about it by the second death. Other places talks about those who are believers will face death if Christ tarries till Christ returns, but we will not face a second death. Revelation chapter 21 and verse 8 talks about it as the lake that burns with fire and brimstone or fire and sulfur. Notice this verse, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murders, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. Did you find yourself anywhere in this particular passage? All of us. We're all destined to this place. We're not for the grace of God. Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which again is the second death. Revelation chapter 14, 11, and Revelation chapter 20 and verse 10 talks about this being places of constant torment day and night, forever and ever, as they have no rest day or... Do we really need to talk about these things? I mean, they're in Scripture here for a reason. I fully believe if we deny the reality of hell, or just ignore it, or just don't talk about it, we'll find ourselves being able to fully understand and comprehend and appreciate the glory of heaven. If the flames of hell are symbolic, then the reality of that flame symbolizes are far worse than what we know on this earth. Because a symbol always represents something far greater than itself. And we talk about heaven, we'll find that as well. Some may wish that it were a real flame, for the reality may be far worse. Some argue that the terms for everlasting or eternal punishment are not really understood. The ideas of annihilation of the wicked or uh, even uh, nothingness have been become much popular. But you want to be careful because the same words for everlasting and eternal are also used to describe salvation in heaven. Billy Graham said, could it be that fire, the fire that Jesus talked about is an eternal search for God that is never quenched? That indeed would be hell to be away from God forever separated from His presence. The question has been asked, will Christians in heaven be able to see into hell? And will we continue to know and realize loved ones who do not receive Jesus and are spending eternity in separation from God? Certainly no one could say for sure what we'll know, what we'll see in heaven, but we can conclude that we'll have perfect knowledge and complete uh, imperfect knowledge. But while that will be true, the light of God's love and goodness will outshine any darkness. The light of God's love and goodness will outshine any darkness. His light will be so bright that ungodly things will be overshadowed and our focus will be on glorifying our Lord. But He does want the redeemed and the unredeemed to get a glimpse of hell today while here on earth. The unredeemed so that they will have salvation and the redeemed for a greater motivation. 
There's a lady in our church. Now, this was a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. There's a lady in our church that every few weeks she would say to me, she would say, Brother Jeff, how come you don't ever preach on hell? When are you ever going to preach on hell? Well, I actually thought I did from time to time, but after I preached a sermon, maybe similar to this sermon, preached on guess she wasn't there. So, next time I saw her in church, I said, you missed it. I preached on hell the other week when you were not here. You missed it and preached on hell. And she said, oh, but thank goodness. Boy, they really need it. Also, we have what warnings are in Luke 16 passage about the rich lost man. The rich man had several warnings. He had the Old Testament or the Law and the Prophets. As a good Jewish family, they would come. They'd sit in the synagogue every Sabbath and hear from the Old Testament and the Law and the Prophets that have warning after warning about how people need to repent and put their faith in God. That salvation does not come from an outward religion, but by placing faith in eternal God. That's in the Old Testament? Yes, it's everything. It's what the Bible is teaching us from Genesis to Revelation. Obviously, the rich man nor his five brothers ever heeded the warning. There are people just like you and me who get up every Sunday morning, they put on their Sunday go to meet and shoes, they put on their Sunday clothes and they come and they show up in church and they listen to a worship service or they find themselves in a Sunday school class and they hear warning after warning about salvation is found in Jesus, but they cannot digest the things of God because they have put their faith in something else besides God. Like the rich man. Their God is whatever pleases and satisfies them. God's word is a warning. Lazarus was a witness, or he was a warning as a person of faith. In verse 28, it suggests that Lazarus might have been a witness while he was alive, but he was not taken seriously. But now if he came back from the dead, his witness would be very important, the rich man contends. Well, John 10 tells us that Jesus did bring back a Lazarus from the dead. But did he serve as a warning for most and those who needed it? It doesn't seem so. In fact, many who knew that he was brought back from the dead and knew him, some of his religious leaders, sought to kill him. Notice who died first in the story. Lazarus dies first, which should have served as a warning. The rich man came out of his house one morning to pick up the Jerusalem times, and there he found and discovered the beggar who sat at his door every day was dead. He felt no remorse. He didn't say, oh, there's so much I could have done for this beggar, this poor beggar. He didn't even think to himself, well, if this one has died, I probably should sure think about the warning that one day I would die, and I better prepare for it. You've heard a lot of statistics probably in the last year or so, a lot about the pandemic and dependence, and they keep changing from day to day and maybe from news channel to news channel. But here's one statistic that is most sobering of all, one out of every one person will face death someday until the Lord returns. Now, people cannot be forced or frightened into accepting Jesus. They must be persuaded. And the hard truth is, though one were raised from the dead, some will not be persuaded. And one did. Strongest evidence of for salvation was Jesus' victory over death. The warning of this passage and the subject is that people need to recognize a need for salvation and accept God's opportunity while the opportunity is available. However, Jesus, who spoke more about hell than he did about heaven, may have spoken about hell as much for his disciples as he did for the lost. One writer said that if God's people could spend one second in hell, we would become more bolder witnesses for the Lord. The reality of hell will lead us to do all we can to 
be able to show God's love, to share with others, and to warn. In my 40 years of ministry, there have been many times that perhaps I let an opportunity go only to hear sometime later that that person has passed on and has died, and I felt regret and even remorse. But how thankful I am that the Lord has given me many, many more opportunities and does not stop. How about what will happen to those who never hear of Jesus? I won't pretend to answer all questions, but we will answer what we know from God's Word. Jesus told His disciples in the upper room just before He was crucified, so we figure pretty important words He said in John 14, 6. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. By the way, this is our theme passage for our vision for the next five years, that we want to win more people to Christ. and Salvation is found only in Jesus. Yet according to the International Mission Board, there are 6,700 unreached people groups in the world. It represents well over a billion people who have little or no access to the good news of the gospel. These two factors, Jesus is the only way, yet many people do not have access to the good news about Jesus. It seems incongruent. But we must think Bible. A loving God is not sending anyone to hell. Our loving God has done and is doing everything possible to keep people from hell while at the same time remaining holy and just and allowing people to have free will to be able to choose Him. Paul went to great lengths in his letter to the Romans written so that people might be able to know how to share the gospel. And, and he writes in Romans chapters 1 and 2 that we are without excuse because God has revealed Himself even in nature in many other ways, but we do not seek Him. Instead, He seeks us. Romans chapter 1 verses 19 and 20 says this, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So while no one is exempt, Jesus came to save all people who are already on the road to destruction. If we know that there are many, many in the world who are lost. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 says, The Lord is patient toward us, not wanting any to perish, but that all should come to repentance. Listen, the church... You want to be a part of the church so that you can be part of the solution. The church, the body of Christ, holds the hope for all. And as long as we're thinking biblical truth, consider this. If there's any other way for lost people to be saved from hell or to be able to know God, or if those who've never heard the good news are somehow exempt, then we should not tell anybody else, for they may not believe. Many of us, too many of us, are living as if that is the truth. But the truth is, everyone, everyone needs to hear the truth. And everyone needs to know Jesus. Well, what difference does it make? I mean, what difference does it make if you believe it to be true? Now, there are those of you that are sitting here, maybe listening live streaming. You're already thinking on this very serious, even sometimes uncomfortable subject... You're thinking you may not believe all that we've said today. I mean, my goodness, how could Jesus really be the only way? Could hell really be that bad? Or does hell exist whatsoever? And you're thinking, 
could it really be true? Well, in a couple of weeks, we're going to be talking about absolute truth. And, of course, we're going to be talking about the importance of God's Word and how there is absolute truth today. We find it in the Word of God today. It's not about what we think is true. It's not about how we feel. But it's what God has revealed to us through His written Word and through the living Word, who is Jesus. What difference does it make? For those who are not followers of Christ yet, heed the warning. Jesus loves you. He wants to have a relationship with you. And today, today, this very hour, you want to call upon Jesus. Whether you're here today listening live stream, if you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you're not sure, it can be settled today. Don't keep thinking, well, I'm not sure, I think, maybe, but today it can be settled. We can't talk about the past. I don't know what's happened in the past for you. Don't know what you've done in the past, whether you really meant a prayer in the past or not. But today you can know for sure. With sincerity of heart, you know that you can call upon Jesus. Ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins. Ask Christ to be Savior and Lord. Put the weight of this life, the weight of eternity, on Jesus. And have Him be your Savior and Lord. For those who are followers of Christ, do not live in fear, but spend your days helping others to know how to live eternity, eternally with Jesus. Suppose a family lives next door to you, and oh, I got two precious kids, mom and a dad, but they're starving to death. They're, they're dying of malnutrition. So you go every day, three times a day that you go, and you place food at the door, and you try to give them food, but they refuse to take your food. You call a doctor, hire a doctor to make a house call, and come and say, check on this. There's something wrong here. Come check on them, see what, they, what can be done. You, you tell them you'll pay all medical bills, anything that needs to be done in order that they might... Be not die of malnutrition, but they refuse to your help whatsoever. And as days go by, they eventually die of starvation. Well, they, people know you live next door. They may not know everything you do, and they're probably thinking, what a sorry neighbor you are that you didn't do more to be able to help them to die of starvation. But you know that you've done everything that could be done. Well, here's a word of encouragement. Jesus has done everything to make salvation possible to all. He did not come to send anyone to hell, but that so no one would have to go. For God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son, so that whoever believes in Him might not, you could say it, perish, but have eternal life. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank You for this opportunity that we've had to come into Your house and be able to, be able to worship You today. We pray today that the reality of who Jesus is, the reality of God's Word, we pray that it's become apparent today in our own lives. And Father, we pray that we might make personal application, that if we don't know Christ, that we might be able to call upon Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And even because the realities of heaven and hell, if we're far away, that we want to be drawn close. But Father, also that we might be part of the solution to be able to point others to the Lord Jesus, to be able to show God's love wherever we go, to open doors for others and not shut doors. For we believe that you have the answer. You are the answer for the world. We pray today for those who are present here, those who are watching today, pray that they might be salvation for someone or many who need to come to know Christ. We pray, Father, that you may help us as we look at a larger perspective, a bigger picture, that we do not live in fear because Christ is on our, on our side. What can the world do to us? For we know 
that we have been saved. Saved from hell, saved from sin, saved from slavery to this world. And we are born to be able to live, reborn, so that we might be able to live with Christ today and forever. Thank you, Father, for what you've provided. May you receive all the glory. This we pray in the precious name of the Lord Jesus. Amen and amen.